Hi, I'm Dr. Rebecca May, and this is Arcana Advances. Follow along as we explore all renal research happenings at Arcana Laboratories. Hello, welcome to Arcana Advances, where we discuss exciting new research in renal pathology performed by our very own physicians. I'm Dr. Rebecca May, and today we have Dr. Z, who will be discussing his recent review article in Seminars in Diagnostic Pathology titled, A Practical Approach to the Pathology of Renal Intratubular Casts. We have the paper. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Z. So this is a great article. There's so many different types of casts that we need to keep track of when we're assessing renal biopsies. And it's really important, depending on the type of cast, the prognosis can be really different. And so you did a deep dive into six types of pathologic casts and also discussed benign casts, which is really helpful, uh, especially for someone starting out in renal pathology. So we're going to briefly discuss each type here, and then um, I really do hope you'll check out the article because there's some gorgeous pictures in there as well. So let's start with some benign casts, hyaline and neuromodulin, or TAM horsefall. Can you describe the appearance and composition of these? Sure. So the most common cast type are the hyaline casts, and they really don't have uh, much of a morphologic spectrum. So their appearance is that of concentric and round casts surrounded by simplified epithelium. And, you know, inside is this hyaline protonaceous type material. Um, and research has shown that it's mostly uromodulin, mostly tam horsefall protein. And, uh, you know, the, the typical appearance is that of thyroidization type tubular atrophy, right, where they look like thyroid follicles. And these are the most common type. You can see these in, um, in almost all types of biopsies from completely benign to advanced and chronic biopsies. Um, but it's important to, to recognize them as benign. Um, and then, of course, the uromodulin or TAM horsefall casts are also incredibly common because, you know, uromodulin is produced by the uh, distal tubules of the kidney exclusively. It's the only place in the body where they're produced, and it's quite a bit of it is made every day. Approximately 100 milligrams per day is produced, and it, its function is primarily to prevent fimbriated E. coli or ascending colonic bacteria from attaching to the uroplakin receptor on the urothelium. So it has a very strong bacterial effect, um, and also it prevents formation of calcium stones, in particular calcium oxalate and calcium phosphate. So if you delete this in animal models, um, if you de delete the presence of uromodulin, you get uh, a massive increase, in not only the number and composition, but severity of nephrolithiasis. And of course, you get ascending urinary tract infections that can be really quite severe. So now this protein is present uh, very commonly in biopsies and has a particular histologic appearance. It tends to be very bubbly, and that's thought to be due to the lipid content admixed with it. It's usually PAS positive as opposed to PAS pale. Um, and then also it can have variable densities, right? It can look almost magenta. And when it's incredibly dense, it can fracture. It can protrude beyond the biopsy edge. And um, it can also sometimes elicit an inflammatory reaction. And these last three features are what uh, sometimes can cause misdiagnosis as a light chain cast at least histologically, right? So, so they can mimic incredibly pathologic casts. So that's why it's important to understand their, their histologic character and the, the spectrum of their morphology. And of course, the TAM horse proteins also have very, typically the borders can be very uh, non, not very distinct, whereas in other, you can have a cast next door that, that, that 
you know, has very sharp borders, fracture lines, et cetera, but it's all totally benign. But we do have a stain for that if it gets confusing, right? You right. can stain for uromodulins. Right, exactly. So we do have an IHC stain uh, against uromodulins. So if there's ever, you know, if there's ever a question, is this truly um, uromodulin versus a light chain cast, um, that can be employed. All right, so let's move on to some of the pathologic casts. And let's start with light chain casts, which are some of the most beautiful casts, I just have to say. They're really pretty on um, microscopy. And these are most, we mostly see them in patients with multiple myeloma, right? Right, right, right. So the presence of light chain casts is diagnostic of multiple myeloma. Um, in some rare instances, it can be caused by B cell neoplasms as well. But, you know, for vast majority of the time, it's caused by multiple myeloma. And they're interesting because, of course, you know, light chains are produced daily by the normal immunologic system in healthy individuals. Quite a bit of it is produced and filtered by the kidney, about, I believe, about 500 milligrams on average per day. And most of that is, most of the free light chain that, that um, is filtered through the glomerulus is reabsorbed by the proximal tubular epithelial system. And that system is incredibly efficient. I think only about less than 1% of free light chain actually ends up in the urine um, at the end of it all. So this system is very, very efficient. However, if you have a plasma cell dyscrasia where you have 100-fold, 1,000-fold increase in the production of a free light chain, usually one or the other, kappa or lambda, uh, this overcomes the uh, resorptive capacity of the proximal tubular epithelium, right? So then you're essentially filtering an incredible amount of free light chain. And then what's interesting is the free light chains themselves don't precipitate on their own, uh, but precipitate in the presence of uromodulin or TAM horsefall protein, which we just now discussed as a totally benign protein. Mm -hmm. So this benign protein is required for the, um, for the initial crystallization of this protein. Mm. Okay, so, so you can have casts where you have uromodulin admixed with a free light chain cast in the same tubule. So it can become very confusing. So you have Tam Horsfall, you have this massive amount of free light chain, and then they precipitate out and they form these gorgeous crystals, like you mentioned. They almost look like glass. Mm -hmm. So they don't have the bubbly appearance. They they they're PS pale as opposed to PS positive. And you know, they have fracture lines, sharp edges, and they oftentimes elicit a very strong inflammatory reaction, sometimes even giant cells. Mm -hmm. uh, so when you see this, and it can be incredibly focal, um, you know, sometimes it's found on the edge of the biopsy or in the medulla, in a place where you wouldn't look um, typically. But it can also, of course, be found in the proximal tubules and even rarely. Uh, we've seen it very, very rarely, even in the Bowman's capsule. So mm. so that's why they can mimic your modulin and your modulin can be admixed with them, but they're incredibly, they carry an incredibly poor prognosis. What's the prognosis for these? Uh, once identified, the prognosis to kidney death from biopsy is about 20 months mm. and survival of the patient from the time of multiple myeloma diagnosis um, is usually about 44 months to death. Mm. So it carries an incredibly poor prognosis. Mm, horrible. So let's move on to discuss myoglobin and hemoglobin casts, which um, you discuss in the paper in the same sort of category because they, they really look alike. And we'll discuss that. But um, first, can you talk about how these casts are formed and clinical clues that they might be there? Sure. So, you know, myoglobin and hemoglobin, the, the protein itself, you know, is derived from the same homologous predecessor protein. Um, so they're very, very similar. Uh, myoglobin is released by necrosis or death of 
of muscle cells by rhabdomyolysis, and the myoglobin is released as a as a monomer protein. And of course, it's a it's a heme iron carrying protein, right? So the presence of iron makes it in, makes myoglobin incredibly toxic mm -hmm. to the kidney and in particular to the proximal tubular epithelium. Now, hemoglobin uh, is found in red blood cells as a tetramer. It's essentially basically four of them together um, create this protein that has interesting allosteric properties, uh, different from myoglobin. It carries oxygen, but it has the ability to release oxygen when the partial pressure of it is low, like in peripheral tissues, and then pick up oxygen when it's in the lungs, right? So mm -hmm. that's, that's the difference in function. Myoglobin function is to really store oxygen in the muscle, whereas hemoglobin's function is to, uh, to carry and deliver oxygen, right? So they're very, very similar molecules, and there's no surprise that they look similar on biopsy also. So what happens is, you know, the, the hemoglobin, once it's released, and the pathophysiology of hemoglobin release is hemolysis, intravascular mm -hmm. hemolysis. They can, be, they can be caused by a number of, uh, number of things. Uh, we found in our series that really it's rifampin and autoimmune hemolytic anemia account for the majority of mm -hmm. hemolysis cases. Um, but also a number of other you know, etiologies can cause it, illicit and medicinal drugs in particular. Um, and then also now as far as myoglobin release, that's caused by all sorts of things, typically trauma or severe physical exertion. Um, in third world countries, it can be caused by snake envenomation, in particular mm -hmm. in India, places like this. It's actually a leading cause of rhabdo in India. Um, wow. you know, so you have very, very different etiologies that lead to release of myoglobin and hemoglobin, which is then uh, filtered through the kidney and similar to light chain casts, once they encounter, uh, once they encounter TAM horsefall protein, once the pH of the tubular, uh, intratubular contents decreases, and if there's enough of it, they will precipitate out into casts that are actually visible on biopsy. Can you talk about their appearance on light microscopy? Right. So they they have a characteristic appearance. They look granular to globular, mm -hmm. and then focally they can form little beads or even mm -hmm. ropes. And this is really the only cast type that I'm, I'm aware of that does this. Of course, the differential diagnosis of these casts is also light chain casts because light chain casts can sometimes be granular. So, you know, the differential diagnosis of these bead-like formations and rope-like formations is myoglobin, hemoglobin, and light chain casts. And of course, the, the way to differentiate is using immunofluorescence to see if there's restriction, A, and then uh, immunohistochemistry for myoglobin and hemoglobin to carefully differentiate. And the reason it's important to carefully differentiate is because myoglobin and hemoglobin casts actually carry a very favorable prognosis. In other words, patients, you know, once once the etiology of the rhabdomyolysis or intravascular hemolysis is dealt with, and you know, if given enough time, most kidneys return to baseline renal function. Whereas, like I've already discussed, the light chain casts are incredibly they carry incredibly poor prognosis. And you recommend staining if you see these casts for both myoglobin and hemoglobin, right? Because you can't always tell the difference. Right. Or you can't so, tell the difference by light. Right, you cannot tell the difference by light, and you know we've tried. We've done a number of uh, studies and techniques. Uh, some of it has been published in the in my hemoglobin uh, cast paper. So we really tried our best to find a light microscopic way without using immunohistochemistry to differentiate them, and we, we really can't. Um, mm -hmm. They're so 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 similar. So you really have to rely on immunohistochemistry, and also, you know, they can also be present. It, you know, a number of ideologies can cause both rhabdomyolysis and intravascular hemolysis, and patients can have, 
you know, multiple etiologies. You know, we've had people with autoimmune hemolytic anemias who also have rhabdo, um, or people with rhabdo that also have a, a bad cardiac valve that leads to hemolysis. You can have both of these processes happening mm -hmm. at the same time. So this is why we recommend staining for both and also reporting the, the proportion of which cast, you know, because that influences um, you know, the interpretation of the, of the clinical history, perhaps if there's a lot more myoglobin as opposed to hemoglobin and vice versa, that can mm -hmm. really influence how the patient is worked up and treated. Mm -hmm. So, but overall they have a great prognosis. So like you said, it's very important to give that information because they may need that temporary dialysis to get them over the kidney injury, but then they could do quite well right, if so. the damage stops. Right, and they typically cause a really profound form of acute tubular injury, right? So they have mm -hmm. serum creatinine values not uncommonly into double digits. Actually, for the, for the myoglobin cast cases, the, the mean serum creatinine is 10. Wow. Um, and similar, similar value for hemoglobin cast. So they have an incredibly severe form of acute tubular injury, but the good news is that they tend to recover over mm -hmm. time. So despite that, the severity of acute kidney injury, the, the prognosis ultimately is very positive. So let's move on to red blood cell casts, which are something we encounter really frequently. Can you discuss the etiology of red blood cell casts? Right. So red blood cell casts are most commonly found in the kidney secondary to a primary glomerular process, either a proliferative mm -hmm. or necrotizing crescentic glomerulonephritis. Also, it can be found in kidneys in folks that are over anticoagulated. Mm. Um, so that you can find um, red blood cell casts in those instances. So the presence of them really should alert the pathologist to, uh, to identify, to try to identify a primary glomerular pathology. Now, the reason that they are tricky is because when they start to, they're, they're easy to identify when they're fresh, they're bright red, they're they're compacted, uh, they cause simplification of the tubular epithelium, and they stand out mm -hmm. on, especially on H&E and trichrome stains, et cetera. However, when they start to break down and hemolyze, if they've been present in the tubule for a long time, they start to break down. And if you give them enough time, all that intracellular content, hemoglobin, will be released, mm -hmm. and it will start to precipitate, and will start to form beads and ropes, and it can really resemble a hemoglobin cast. And we've seen a number of instances where a red blood cell cast in advanced stages of breakdown within the tubule has been misdiagnosed as a hemoglobin cast, right? And the ideology is very different. You're, if you diagnose a hemoglobin cast, you're implying intravascular hemolysis, whereas if you diagnose a red blood cell cast, you're implying a primary glomerular pathology most of the time. Mm -hmm. um, so it's important to be able to identify red blood cell cast as such in advanced stages of breakdown and hemolysis. And typically we do that by careful examination and looking for what we call red blood cell ghosts mm -hmm. or essentially residual uh, membranes left behind um, from the red blood cells once they've started to hemolyze. You can typically see uh, the presence of these membranes, red blood cell membranes, within an advancedly hemolyzed red blood cell cast. And that's very critical. And, and I think utilizing trichrome stains and silver stains is very helpful in this instance. So there, that's, that, that's essentially what we tried to discuss in the review. And I know I like to use hemolyzing red blood cell casts almost as a clue that the red blood cell casts are, are real, right? Could you discuss a little bit about how you can get this artifact of red blood cells within the tubular lumen just from the biopsy itself. Right, exactly. No, I'm glad you mentioned that. So the procedure itself, the biopsy procedure itself, can lead to uh, some degree of hemorrhage, and this hemorrhage can end up in the tubules. Uh, but the way you differentiate a real cast from really a procedure-induced intratubular 
erythrocytes is that a real cast will be incredibly compact, mm-hmm. right? It'll be densely compact. It will push onto the tubular epithelium and it will essentially injure the tubular epithelium and the tubular epithelium will simplify. Whereas procedural casts are typically not that compact, the surrounding epithelium typically looks intact. And, you know, if you're seeing intratubular advanced hemolysis that really does argue that these red blood cell casts have been there prior to the procedure. Mm -hmm. So I I like that point you're making. Yeah, that's an important distinction to make. Okay, so let's move on to neutrophil casts, which are also very striking. Can you talk about what's associated with neutrophilic casts? Right. So the presence of neutrophilic casts is typically associated uh, with an ascending infection. Uh, pyelonephritis in particular, if there's quite a bit of it, um, to varying degrees of intensity. Um, And they are striking because it's essentially a cast full of neutrophils or it's neutrophil rich. Um, And with pyelonephritis, oftentimes it's associated with neutrophilic tubulitis and neutrophilic satellitosis or Mm. rimming around the tubule, right? Um, But it's also important to note that they can be present um, with certain primary glomerular pathologies like necrotizing crescentic glomerulonephritis, et cetera. And also you can get a strong neutrophilic reaction to certain types of intratubular casts. Um, But anyways, they're they're very important to identify because it can raise a clue that there's a presence of an ascending infection, in particular in elderly folks who may not have a fever, may not have costovertebral tenderness, or patients that are immunosuppressed due to diabetic uh, changes, also transplant patients, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And also, you know, we've had a number of cases where neutrophil casts are present not because of an ascending infection, but because of embolic disease, for instance, a a, an infected cardiac valve that's shooting emboli into the kidney. So you have basically an embolic form of, of kidney infection that can lead to a strong neutrophilic uh, type of appearance on biopsy. And sometimes uh, you're right to point out that sometimes it's not clinically evident that the patient has pyelonephritis. And so we provide a really important service by could save the kidney, really. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So let's move on to bile casts. Yeah, bile casts are very, very interesting because they have a completely different appearance typically. Um, They are, the clinical association, of course, is most often hepatorenal syndrome or the concomitant presence of both liver failure and kidney failure. And Mm -hmm. bile casts are found in patients that are already jaundiced most of the time. Um, And they tend to have total bilirubin levels of 20 or above. So obvious evidence of, of, of liver failure. Um, both clinically and by laboratory tests. Uh, But they're identified uh, based on on light microscopy. They have this very characteristic, to me, it looks almost like a camel hair brown color, Mm -hmm. right? Sometimes they can have a yellowish or a greenish hue, uh, but not always, right? And typically there is a lot of them, but they also can be focal. Sometimes they can form little beads. Oftentimes they're admixed with Tam Horsfall. So you really have to sort of especially for a novice, you have to practice in recognizing them, right? And then to truly identify them as bile casts, we employ a stain. It's called Hall stain. And Hall stain relies on a, on a reagent called Fouchette's reagent. Mm-hmm. Um, that essentially what it does is it, uh, it speeds up the conversion of bilirubin to biliverdin. And biliverdin is much more green than bilirubin. So we'll essentially make these casts olive green, emerald green, beautiful green, green color. And that's the diagnostic test to identify true bile casts in the biopsy. And what I find really interesting about these as well is that the tissue, the biopsy tissue grossly looks 
green often. And so the technicians that are grossing these specimens will will often notice the bright green color, and it can give you that clue that you're going to be looking for bile casts later on. Right, 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 right. So grossly, these kidneys are green because mm-hmm. of the presence of so much bilirubin. Um, so yeah, it's 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 not uncommon for our technicians to call us and say, "What is going on? Why is this <laughs> kidney green? What's what's happening here?" So yes. at that point, you can just order the hall stain. <laughs> I think that's yeah. safe. Well, that was a quick review of the most common benign and pathologic casts in renal biopsies. And so I really urge you to check out the beautiful pictures. It's a great reference guide that you've put together. So thank you, Dr. Z, for coming on the podcast and discussing this paper. And for more research happenings at Arcana Laboratories and any other information, visit us online at arcanalabs.com or follow us on Twitter at Arcana Labs. And you can also follow me on Twitter at Rebecca May underscore RP. And Dr. Z, where can people get in contact with you if they have additional questions? Sure, you can, you're welcome to call me at Arcana Labs if you'd like to further discuss, or you can contact me via email. And my email is on these papers. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening. This podcast and more can be found in the iTunes store. For more information and educational programming like this, follow us on Facebook and Twitter, or visit us on the web at arcanalabs.com.